public sector institutions the first day of a new financial year and uh, we're going to first take a look at what's been happening in the marketplace and uh, it's our wrap of the top business stories and joining me to do this is Nolwandle Mtombeni analyst at Mergence Investment Managers Nolwandle good evening to you and welcome Hi Ayebongunjani Mkhona Good 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 Nolwandle I want us to start off with this PMI number now, uh, some of the data coming out uh, of uh, the Bureau of Economic Research and APSA showing that, um, uh, yeah, notwithstanding, and I guess maybe somebody needs to explain this to me, this uh, whole notion of uh, supplier lead times and why that would uh, lead to a positive uptick in the PMI because uh, we saw a positive number for the month of March and uh, historic weaknesses in other sub-indicators, uh, which are set to get worse now that we find ourselves in this lockdown. Yes, yeah, so I think, um, you know, in, even in terms of the manufacturing process and, you know, we would have had, in typical course, you know, there will be, you know, certain delays in terms of getting production through and things going from A to B and C. So there's always an element of catch-up in terms of the numbers when it comes to the, the PMI numbers. So, I mean, this was obviously a monthly, you know, sentiment-driven, sentiment-in-market indicator. So with every PMI number, there will be a level of, you know, a bit of a mismatch to a certain degree. And mm-hmm. we will like that before China. We had China, I think China out yesterday. So, but I think, you know, the point of these, these indices, I mean, these indices that they produce, is just to give you a sense of where the manufacturing activity is. Um, it's not you know, going to be 100% spot on, but it gives you a good guide in terms of, you know, basically they have that 50 point mark and anything above that is an expansion, anything below that is a contraction. Mm. And so you would have seen, you know, you know, March activity would have actually stopped coming up. And um, I mean, I mean, yeah, in March and then, you know, the March, yes, March. So, but obviously, you know, I think looking forward, that's not going to be how it will be. Mm. Certainly some tough times there happening on the factory floor. I mean, when we try and look into the crystal ball and forecast into, uh, I guess, the uh, uh, coming months, uh, I think of the month of April and even the month of May, right through to, say, July or August or so, uh, what do we anticipate this indicator looking like and uh, some of the movements and some of its subcomponents when we're fully aware that even prior to this lockdown, uh, already South African factories weren't working at full capacity and you add to that now, the disruptions in production that we've seen, and uh, one would think that uh, uh, it would be plausible to think that this number will se- will be set to get a lot worse. Yeah, it definitely has to be. Um, and you know, as I you know indicated, fifty points is, uh, is anything above fifty is, is an expansion and below shrinking. So there's no way you can ever get to above fifty anytime soon. We know for a fact the economy is under a, a shutdown effectively right now. So it will stay, you know, you know, quite low for a while. Um, and even when you know the economy is open again for business, there's still going to be some lead times in terms of getting capacity. Yeah. You know, we always want a V-shaped recovery, but that's not typically what happens. And and that's what everyone hopes for, but that's not what's going to happen. It's going to be you know slow and steady, especially with a weak environment like ours. And we're going to have labor dispute issues that's going to come through as well. So, so those kinds of elements will play in. So we expect that number to be even as low as 20 for, you know, this, this current, coming month. And, you know, and it will remain quite low for quite a while, especially as the economy is going to be quite weak for a couple of months to come. Mm, mm, it's tough times indeed. And uh, I guess it's going to continue uh, adding to the jobs bloodbath that we've seen in the manufacturing sector over the last few years or so. Uh, but, uh, Nolanji, I want us now to maybe take a look at uh, some of the things that have been happening in the world of spaza shops. Now, um, 
It's quite interesting here because the Minister of Small Business Development suggested uh, uh, when this was first announced that only spaza shops that are run by South Africans and licensed uh, with municipal authorities would be allowed uh, to continue operating. And uh, it seems now that uh, more information has been added in that regard. Yeah, I think the first thing I want to highlight is that, you know, when you're dealing with a crisis of this nature, you're going to come up with very draconian laws. That's very normal because you're sitting with a bunch of experts and they're telling you this is what has to be done. And I think, you know, as the, you know, if you get through the process, you realize, you know, where the blind spots are of all these draconian laws that you've implemented and comes through. So it's very natural that, you know, as you go through this, you're going to have them changing their minds and backtracking on certain things because they're just not practical. It's very easy to apply, you know, theory and, you know, but behavioral economics tells us that, you know, in terms of that the psychology of how, you know, the person in the streets works is very different to what we think will be, you know, and it's very effective. So I think we should expect more of this. And it's very natural because you realize that, especially in the informal market, a lot of non-South African people are supplying essential services mm. to our people. So they didn't factor that into account when they're making these laws. They're just thinking about a protectionist type of mind frame. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's how they're trying to, you know, save the economy. But then, you know, the practicality of it was not feasible. Mm. I mean, and we've seen that come through. I guess the, the other idea is this idea that, uh, you know, municipalities as varied as they are. I think we've you know, got quite a few. as about 52 districts and maybe... Uh, two, just over 200, I, I think, and I stand to be corrected, local municipalities. And there's this idea that uh, only those that have uh, some form of recognition by the local authorities will be able to conduct their business. And then you must be registered for UIF, uh, pay as you earn, uh, and everything else. Uh, and I guess, you know, is the end point here just to formalize these puzzle shops? And if so, uh, you know, how, how, how suitable is that in the current context? So it is, definitely is about trying to formalize the market um, because you know, as it is now, I mean, the government is in a situation where when you come out of this, we're going to have a lot of, a huge gap in terms of revenue mm. and they're going to have to plug this hole. And now they also have to start implementing reforms. So it's kind of like, you know, you know, find, you know, making lemonade out of a lemonade out of a lemon. And so that's when they use this opportunity. And I, I, I personally don't think that there's anything wrong with that because it's the, maybe it's what we needed to kind of create formality. I hope it's fair though in how it's implemented. But I think sometimes you look in a crisis and you find a way to, you know, at least come out stronger for it. And I think this is what they're using to do it because some of these measures are there to help people. For example, helping with, you know, bookkeeping and financial things and, and helping to provide funding. So there are certain services that, you know, these other shops will benefit from that they're not getting. And unfortunately, it's a give and take relationship. You know, you can't, you know, get all the benefits of not having to, you have to register the stars, stars as well. So it's, it's both sided, but it is relief. So I don't think it's, you know, meant to be, you know, you know, negative or, you know, to meant to disadvantage anyone who registers. But it, you know, that help does come with a cost. And it's not really a negative, it's not really a cost. It's, it's a long-term benefit for mm. people um, that actually need the help where they that otherwise wouldn't think of to get it. Yeah. And and I guess, I mean, it comes back to the same point that, uh, you know, if, if I am, I remember having a conversation with the Somali Traders Association uh, with one fellow called Mohammed there. And, you know, he made it very clear to us that for many of them who are asylum seekers, who are refugees, very limited likelihood of being able to go 
uh, and get the necessary documentation that allows you to go and open a bank account in the first instance, let alone going to the receiver of revenue and then going uh, to the uh, you know CIPC um, you know from an intellectual property perspective. So, so even in this context, with the support that's going to be extended to help people buy working capital, and that's good. Uh, it still seems that many of those who are currently in operation are effectively excluded from this. Yes, so I think, you know, we need to recognize the fact that, you know, if he can't get the permit, maybe there's a legal element that is missing there, you know, because if you have the papers and you go there, you should be able to do it. So we also need refugee? to account for Yes, yes, yes. But I'm saying even refugees, you can get, you know, get legal documentation as refugee status. To, no, no, so, you know, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, these gentlemen said to us that the banks don't allow them with the uh, refugee documents that they have at their uh, disposal to be able to open a bank account because okay. you know so so just by by its nature yes you might have the documentation but that documentation mm. doesn't work like a green barcoded id oh, that yeah. gives you the yeah. authority to open a bank account and if you don't have a bank account can't pay sars then of course I, I guess on the other hand you also can't can't register with the cipc yeah so i mean even you know even with reg- refugees there should be some sort of um, documentation so i'm not sure from the banking perspective why they can't get any sort of um, mm. identification but they should be because i mean even refugees come come to you know get work permits and 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 sort of residency so there is actually within home affairs channels to deal with refugees is nothing new mm. you know so the, Muhammad needs to go and find out exactly what he's missing because he's not the first refugee to come to Africa and end up getting you know um, alone there's many of them that's been in the system for, for many many decades so um, I think maybe that is something that specifically needs to be tackled in terms of how are we getting the refugees into the system and being able to benefit fairly um, because there really are many refugees that have been here and they've been able to get into the financial system Hmm. Certainly a tough one there. Certainly a tough one there, mm. uh, Nolwantle. But uh, let's shift our attention now to um, what's happening in the taxi industry, which is probably another part of the informal sector economy. It seems now that there's been a, a step change in some of the regulations, uh, which might open up the space for uh, taxi owners, if they can find N95 uh, masks, uh, for them to be able to carry full loads and uh, potentially get the kind of money that will allow them to pay off their instalments. Yes, and I think, you know, this goes back to my earlier point about these laws being passed down. Um, you know, obviously there's a very short period of time where they have to act immediately, but, you know, it didn't take into account that there is still a level of self-preservation and self-interest amongst the people. You know, not everyone will act benevolently and just be like, okay, there's people that need to be transported to get food. You know, many people are thinking, you know, I need to get money in the bank. So, you know, and regardless of what government says about, you know, being able to provide relief for small business owners, um, the taxi industry specifically feels that they've been excluded from any sort of government funding and there's been, you know, there's been this, you know, very hostile relationship between the SA taxi businesses and, and government. So at a time when they actually, the power dynamics have changed completely. And that's what the government didn't factor in, is that actually you actually need them now. You need them more than anything because they are helping. I mean, mm. around 40% of the transport industry goes, I'm not sure, maybe especially on this, you know, just can't remember the right one, but is, is in the taxi business. And, you know, now you need them. So those high dynamics had to come into play in this economy. Yeah. And those are kind of behavioral economics that you can't factor in when you're making these laws. And we're seeing them now having to concede in certain, you know, regulations that they had and say, actually, we need these guys to come through for us. Mm. So we need to kind of relax certain things. But not only here's the bigger issue, right? Yes, it might be COVID-19 today and tomorrow it might be a much larger uh, a challenge that will still require 
the taxi industry to maybe operate on terms that contribute to the national effort. Um, I'm certainly getting a sense from where I'm sitting that you know we, we tried to shift away from the subsidy conversation and said let's rather relax uh, these regulations that inhibit the operation of the sector rather than say let's have a conversation about a pilot on a subsidy so that yes you continue to comply with the lockdown operations but uh, you still have the capability to meet your financing obligations at the end of the month. So yeah so I mean you know we, we would like to hear that conversation about subsidies but I think you know what what takes priority at this moment in time is getting people that need to go where they need to go. Mm. The subsidy conversation is a much longer one. It's nothing they'll be resolved in, in a few days. It's not. It's got to, it needs a budget as well. And I can tell you for sure that the finance minister is not going to sign off on budget funding for subsidies right now. He's not going to do that. You know, he's already got lots of holes. So the subsidy conversations, the conversations that will take weeks and months to resolve cannot be solved while we're in the middle of a crisis. You know, there's simply no time for that. You don't think that. that this is a perfect opportunity to resolve some of these things? I mean, you know, not you in best not waste situation. a crisis, right? You, you best not waste yes, a crisis. You, you no, wanna... you don't waste a crisis, but you need to prioritize what, what, what is important. You need to prioritize. And you can realize that there's, there's, a, there's a whole list of people who are in this crisis are saying, you know, let's deal with A, B, C, D, E. Mm. You see now they've already done the spaza shop. They, they're formalizing the informal sector. Remember, the informal sector is a huge part. I mean, those numbers are not known. And the revenue that's potentially gained from the, you know, is, is massive. So, you know, the, the taxi industry, I mean, that is, can be an ongoing discussion because I can tell you now, I mean, this, the, the problems between, you know, SA government and the taxi industry, um, it, there's a lot of, you know, mm. bad blood that's been going on for many, many years. Yeah, and it's not going to be solved right now. Credit, no mm. I think they've, they've, they've really been good sports on this particular one. They've really... Uh, taken mm. uh, taken to uh, what the president has spoken to. But maybe I think we need to make uh, a time for that conversation on, on, on subsidies because I, I do think that yeah. even this response of relaxing the uh, conditions is largely mm. in response to people who have withdrawn their fleet, people who have said it's not economical for me to still it's continue not, yeah. to transport these folk. But I guess the economics of it uh, largely have to do with um, you know the issues of subsidies and the financing of the acquisition of that fleet. But uh, yeah. let's maybe take a look at the last story here. And it's quite an interesting one here for me coming out of the iron ore sector. Now, we know this is one of the big ingredients into the manufacture of steel. Uh, and it seems Afrimat and many others uh, are continuing, albeit on less than full capacity. Afrimat and Kumba. So, Ibanga, where do you think the RAND exchange rate is right now? Mm, hovering around 18, 19, well. It's at 18.17. Hmm. So if we're exporting in 817, you can imagine the revenue, you know, sure. that we're going to get at this exchange oh, rate. Exactly. So this is how you must think of it. So when the mining minister said that he would allow production of, 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 of continuing mining operations, they will prove it. You must bear in mind that what the economy will gain by continuing to export at 18 rand, obviously then it wasn't 18 rand, it was around 16 rand or so, but you can imagine now, um, you know, the difference that this makes now being able to still export at this exchange rate. Mm. And, and that's why it's up, important. I mean, I guess this is a very, you know, uh, a very stupid question, but what happens at the ports here? Is there like a, because I saw there's a special rail allocation for these guys, uh, which allows them to take it to Saldana. Uh, is there sort of special dispensation or exemptions for, for companies like this and even those who would import through those ports uh, much needed emergency supplies? 
Yes, there will be. So everything that will protect first, you know, essential services as well as, for example, the import and export of, of, of any mining products, they will make special documentations around that specifically. Okay, all right. Uh, certainly an interesting one there. And uh, I guess you don't mm. want to lose that opportunity. I, I mean, I'm thinking exactly. also of the platinum sector now, uh, which has certainly had prices rally over a long period of time. Uh, wh- what all of this would mean, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, disruptions in being able to export your product and the foregone revenue. Mm, exactly. I mean, it's going to impact them quite massively. And as a result, we've seen, you know, the prices will be squeezed because we're still a big player, in, especially in the PGM space. So every time our supply, you know, comes to a halt, it's going to impact the prices. And, you know, we the RAN has moved so much that we can offset some of the lower production with that. Won't be completely, but you know, you, you know, we're not going to let a good crisis, a crisis go to waste completely. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to leave it there. So, thank you very much for your time. Okay. That there was Nolwandje uh, Mtombeni, analyst at Emergence uh, Investment Managers, talking us through some of these stories, and uh, I guess starting to dawn on many of us that uh, the uh, economic and social costs of uh, the containment efforts here are, are real rather than perceived.